Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. Twice published author, fabulous human. It's not the dream yet. There was so much guilt. Don't be too hard on yourself. What would you do differently? Advocate for change. Are they doing enough? Well, it depends on which boardroom you're talking about. Yes, he's a billionaire. So he's kind of in the mud. I love that perspective. Relative inaccessibility of of housing. That just feels so wrong. Is splitting it into enough? We need to be cheerleaders. The reality is the funds are there. For anyone for whom ethical investing is interesting, important, but perhaps a little daunting, have you ever considered writing a book about your journey? This week, we have an investor spotlight on Nicole Haddo, journalist, writer of smash hit, smashed avo about cracking into the property market in your 30s, and now her second book, The Ethical Investor, where she shares how she's living what I honestly think is my cottage core dream life, renovating a charming Victorian cottage in Ballarat, and living her best sustainable life. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Oh, Alex, that's such a lovely intro. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. We always kick off with a question around, what was your first investing memory? So my first investing memory, I mean, that's that's a really funny one for me because I was I was a spender. <laughs> I was not a, a not Same. an investor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when it comes to money memories, my early ones are, uh, you know, having a savings account, um, but then also getting a credit card. Um, honestly, my first investment was my investment property, um, which I bought as a result of having to move home with my parents and 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 do a do mm-hmm. a power save. So that was the first time that I really started looking at how to make my money work for me. And I love that one because I think it counters a lot of perhaps the common narrative that everyone's just investing and good with their money from the moment they get their first job. And I love that you've really had an evolution of, you know, coming to terms with your relationship around money. But then also I think your both your books really just go into that, how you really set your goals, which I loved, and then worked back from there about how you were going to achieve them. So congrats as a fellow spender. uh, It's hard when you're not naturally frugal, but you've achieved so much in such a short period of time. So truly a testament to setting your sights on, you know, making your money go further and then achieving it. You're literally living the dream life. Thank you. I mean, it's it's def- it's not the dream yet. It's still very much a work in progress. I mean, my house is a half renovated disaster zone. Um, but you know, that's why you know when I when I've written both of these books, it's been really important to me to be honest about my my financial position and the challenges that I face. You know, we're all human, mm. um, and it's you know, living is important as well. Um, for me, it was about being able to strike that balance and 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 showing people that it's not too late to turn things around. Absolutely. So you wrote Ethical Investor really is about a a personal journey. I actually really enjoyed watching you navigate all these questions that quite frankly, I was asking myself as well. But tell me a little bit about how you got first interested in ethical investment. How did this start for you? 
Yeah, so it, it, it kicks off um, sort of after Smashed Avocado. So when I finished Smashed Avocado, I, I had my investment property. I was renting where I wanted to live. Everything was pretty good. Um, and then the pandemic started and my tenant moved out of my investment property. And that was the realisation that all of my money was in this one investment. Um, so, A, I needed to deal with that situation, which ultimately resulted in me deciding to sell um, and, and make my next purchase, but also thinking more holistically about the way that I was putting my money away uh, and, and beginning to explore diversification. But also, you know, the, the time we were living in, we just had incredible bushfires. We were in a pandemic. Uh, you know, the world wasn't wasn't looking too snazzy. So it was really important to me to um, to make sure that I was investing in things that I thought would, would make a difference, not only for myself, but for future generations too. And what a journey you went on. I think what I really appreciated about the book was just how much research you'd done to make sure that your investments aligned with your values. That was something that I found really daunting when I first started to get into ethical investing was just the mirage and the marketing around it. So I suppose in your view, what is ethical and are there different types and how do investors kind of navigate all of those different labels on ethical investments? I think the first thing to think about when you think about ethical is, you know, this is, this is your ethics, um, your personal ethics. Uh, I, I needed to spend some time thinking about exactly what my ethics were. A lot of people, when, when we talk about ethical or, uh, ESG, uh, people automatically skip straight to climate change and environment. And absolutely that is, you know, really important. Uh, but there are so many aspects to, to ethical investing. Uh, you know, it, is the board diverse? Um, you know, are they paid? Are staff paid appropriately? Uh, you know, is the supply chain um, reasonable? You know, is there are there any human rights issues uh, that are taking place? There are so many things to consider, and and so many areas as well. I always point to things like aged care. Um, there's a lot of work to be done in the aged care space, and there's a lot of great businesses doing doing great work. Um, you know, there are different kinds of technology that you might consider to be um, hugely ethical. Uh, so it's really about thinking about, A, what your personal ethics are and then th then applying that to um, various industries and sectors and, and thinking about what that means from an, through an investment lens. Mm. And what would you say to people who are looking to invest greener? How would you recommend they go about doing that, I guess, value alignment exercise? Oh, look, there, there, there are several ways you, you can go about it, but I, I found the best thing that I could do was to start with my superannuation um, and to firstly ask for a list of holdings um, because it's not until you see what you are invested in. I mean, you know, we often say, I want, you know, people say I want to become an ethical investor and I say, well, you've already got super, um, you know, that is that is an investment mm. if, you've, if you've got a job. Um, a good point. And quite often those large super funds haven't really needed to be that transparent. Um, but once you have a list of what you're invested in, you can, you can sort of start to think, okay, where, where does this sit on my ethical spectrum? Am I comfortable with being invested in mining companies? Am I comfortable being invested in the big four banks? Uh, you know, if not, what do I want to be investing in and, and what kind of organizations can provide that for me? You mentioned in the book that you actually found it really difficult to extract that information from your super fund. Did you have that difficulty in the other 
I call them sectors, but you really did go about it in kind of quite a methodical way of greening up or value aligning, you know, all your finances from your super to your bank account to your mortgage. Did you find similar difficulties in trying to get an insight into what your money was going into in every other sector? Mm, absolutely. So, so as you say, yes, I did find it very difficult to, to get that money out of my, uh, sorry, that information out of my, um, my super fund. Um, you know, they sort of said to me, this is our secret recipe. We don't want other people knowing about the way that we invest. Um, and, and, and that might have worked a while ago, but, um, the reality is there are now, um, you know, ethical and ESG focused products out there that will provide that transparency. So ultimately it meant flipping it and working out if I couldn't, if I couldn't get the information that I needed where my money was currently invested, whether that be through my super or, or, or my banking, um, I needed to look for companies that would, would provide that transparency and, and they are out there. That's a really interesting point. So you actually sought out transparency and tried to find products or sort of moved away from essentially getting your finances to conform as they were, but you were really active in trying, in being open to really moving your money if it meant that that would better align with your values. Mm, and that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. I mean, we, when we when we talk about banking, and I'm very honest about this, my banking's not where I want it to be. And that's because I have been a freelancer and a contractor. And when it comes time to getting something like a home loan, um, that does tend to reduce mm. your your options. So um, it's it's a journey. It's 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 certainly a work in, in progress for me. Um, but yes, being open to to what alternatives are, are out there. Uh, and, and and supporting those organisations that are doing the right thing was really important to me. I really loved that part of the book where you talked about sort of the, the tension between the financial realities of both your situation and the world that we live in, as well as your ethics. And one of the things that I took away from that, and I'd love to hear what your sort of, what you would recommend to new investors doing this was take it one thing at a time. Because that's really how the book is structured. It was like you focused on one thing, came to a decision and then moved on. And I really appreciated that because the sort of perfectionist like lens we can put to this, I need to do, I need to fix everything at once. First of all, is super overwhelming, but I actually just don't think it's quite feasible for most people. And you will inevitably come up against real challenges. Like for you, it was difficult, probably more difficult to get a loan with a bank that aligned with your values simply because of your financial situation and the work you were doing. But what would you say to investors who are going on this journey? How would you set, tell them to approach it? I would say exactly that. Don't be too hard on yourself. I was so hard on myself. I mean, I was writing a book called The Ethical Investor, so I'm putting a lot of pressure on I myself. I know, there was so much guilt and I was like, you're just doing your best. I actually really appreciated how, I mean, you were so honest in the book, but um, yeah. Anyway, keep going. There is, there is, there is so much research required if you want to be strictly ethical to to standards that you're you're trying to uphold, um, and, and that's not always reasonable. I mean, super, for example, you 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 get you know a, a choice uh, to a point, uh, but you can't control every single holding, um, and you need to get to a point where you can be comfortable with 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 what you've got um, and know that it might not be perfect um to your own individual standards but but that it's better than perhaps it was before um you know likewise investing in in shares 
um, can be an absolute minefield. There's a lot of research required. You know, I was reading company reports and, and then even once I, I was invested, you know, how do I keep an eye on, on, you know, every single individual investment? I'm, I'm in investing in ETFs. I, I can't, I can't, I physically can't control Absolutely. every single investment, uh, decision that is made. Um, I can certainly keep an eye on it. Um, but ultimately I, I made peace with the fact that I was probably doing more than than most people just just by um by mm. using that kind of critical thinking lens um and you know and moving my money away from things that I didn't believe in and I, I think if if every single individual starts thinking like that that that's going to drive some significant shifts I couldn't agree more and we're really seeing that there's been billions of dollars that have been flowing into sort of ESG aligned sectors and companies and while I completely agree with you superannuation and ETFs the whole concept is a bundle of stocks you're naturally going to have you know some ETFs publish what their holdings are and the percentage of the holdings that they have within the ETFs and others sort of give you a rough overview but they don't tell you every single holding which is why I think generally speaking Yes, you can maybe ask your superannuation fund for that information. The PDS equally for ETFs will give you some insight, but perhaps more importantly, it'll tell you how they're structuring the fund. So what screens are they using? And that can help figure out, well, maybe I align with the holdings now, but is the way that they're figuring out which companies go in and which companies are deleted, does that align with my ethics? Mm. One thing that I find really interesting is there is a clear passion for ESG amongst investors. We're seeing, you know, ETH is one of SelfWealth's top five holdings. We're seeing a lot of ESG investments amongst our millennial and Xennial and Gen Z, our younger investors. What are your thoughts on the other side of the boardroom? Are we seeing change there? Well, it depends on which boardroom you're talking about. I mean, <laughs> um, I, I, I think, I think, Increasingly, um, these boardrooms of these large organisations are extremely aware that um, millennials, Gen Z, the, the you know the the young people coming up, um, even behind Gen Z, um, are going to be so switched on. I had a conversation with a woman yesterday whose ten year old son came home and asked her whether they were invested in crypto yet. I mean, that's that, that's that's what that's wow. what kids are, that's what kids are talking about now. Wow. Um, not Pokemon anymore. No, no, and and so you know they're savvy, and and I think a big reason for this is probably. Um, the relative inaccessibility of, of housing, um, and that more young people are mm. putting their money into into investing in shares as as a way to build wealth, either in the interim or or, or long term, um, and they're also extremely aware of what's happening in terms of climate. Um, so this is these are very large cohorts that are coming up with, who are you know effectively voting with their money. Uh, and so while I while I'm not in the boardroom. Um, you know, listening to these conversations, I imagine the conversations are we can't keep sweeping things under the rug. We need to do something. Um, the question is what do they do? Because as we know, divestment is, isn't necessarily um, easy. You know, if you take the example of, of you know, mm. a, a big bank that might be invested heavily in mining, um, that's not something they can necessarily move out of overnight. But are these conversations happening? I, I believe they are happening increasingly. Yeah, divestment is, a, is an interesting approach. I, I, I've been really fascinated to follow 
the different strategies companies are using. Some are just committing to 2050 or 2030 net zero targets and they're just pushing to get there. And for some companies, that's a lot easier. If you're a tech company, cleaning up your act to go carbon neutral is a lot easier than if you are Rio Tinto, for example. But the other interesting thing that I'm curious for your points, uh, for your insight into is companies that are restructuring. So AGL is perhaps a prime example. Their, Their approach was really to split, I mean, this is very simplistic, but to split their dirty assets and their coal-fired power plants and move those into one company and put their renewables and, you know, commit to a 2030 target in another side of the company. And we're seeing this approach in other sectors. Woolworths did a very similar thing with, uh, sorry, Endeavor Group did a very similar thing with their company, splitting the gambling assets into one and their, you know, liquor and gambling into one and then their retail operations into another. And I'm perhaps a pessimist, so I saw this as them trying to get the clean side onto ESG indexes. But I'm curious for your view. Do you think it's a net positive? What's your perspective? Look, to be honest with you, I think you're probably right to a point. Um, you know, as we've just said, the, these big organisations know that that there is um, a lot of consumer pressure um, and that they are probably trying to set up a, a view that they are doing the right thing. I mean, most organisations will have some sort of an ESG message on their website somewhere um, and that kind of brings us to the point of the idea of greenwashing. Um, so there's a huge difference between uh, doing it for the marketing and doing it genuinely you know, to, for the for the greater good. Um, you know, if if you want to use that example of, of Woolworths, is to split is splitting it into enough? Um, you know, is it still right for them to be to be holding gaming? Um, you know, gaming and the gambling aspect. I don't know. I don't know if splitting it into it is enough. Um, in the case of something like AGL, I think what we can take from that is when shareholders. Uh, with significant wealth and significant influence advocate for change, that change can take place. That was a pretty impressive example of activist investing, which I want to talk a little bit about greenwashing and, you know, what activist investing is. But the the HL example is truly, I think, a real great perspective on Yes, he's a billionaire and therefore has much more propensity to change. But the super fund Hester, their members were saying, we're not going to, like, we don't agree with this. We're pushing for green. And they actually joined uh, Mike Cannon Brooks in advocating against it. And Hester was coming out and saying, we're also going to vote this down because we don't think it agrees, like it aligns with our long-term views and what we think our members want. And so those those individual people, people like yourself who are picking ethical investments, it is clearly filtering up, which is really impressive, into these boardroom discussions and views on whether the restructure was the right approach or how companies divest and how companies become net zero. The one thing that I was really gratified to see was individual action, whether it's leading less meat or investing your money greener. It's clearly, clearly having a ripple effect because these board of directors are having these conversations with ESG in mind. Mm. Well, I think the other thing to say about that, that's absolutely right. But the other thing to say about that is, you know, in the case of Mike Cannon-Brooks, he could have said, I'm only going to invest in the renewable space. Instead, he's in AGL, so he's kind of in the mud. 
um, in mm. an, choosing to be in an organisation that is huge and holding them to account and driving change. And that's that. There's something to be said for that, you know. So, so, so being in the weeds and 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 you know really trying to drive change is is actually extraordinary. Rather than just saying I'm just going to go and invest in solar and wind farms, he's he's like, no, I'm go- I'm going to go into an organisation that can get better, and I'm going to make a lot of noise about it. Yeah, that's such a real. That's a really really good perspective because we have seen so much money flow into, especially tech, because tech can hit a lot of the sort of ESG metrics quite easily, and also in in solar tech and renewables and that sort of thing. And it, if we're really serious about this, I think Mike has somewhat the right ideas. We have to get these big polluters on the train. They need to be on board. They need to be cheerleaders. And I'm actually really gratified that someone is having that conversation because I think it was a bit of an uncomfortable one. How do you get the miners and the waste producers and the construction industry to become greener? So I love that we're finally having that conversation, but I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned greenwashing before. What does it mean and where are you seeing this happen? Well, greenwashing is 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 effectively marketing um, your, your product, your service, your investment um, as environmentally friendly or environmentally conscious uh, and when you do a little bit of digging you realize that perhaps it's not um, and it, you know this is simply a result of of again consumer pressure and, and companies realizing that um, they you know they need to be presenting as doing the right thing um, so it's really up to to people who are looking to invest to to make sure that they don't take any of that marketing or messaging at face value um, and and make sure that they take the time to look under the hood and and establish whether it really is doing what it says it is or whether it's just, you know, a throwaway line, um, you know, on a website with some pretty pictures. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to see clearly the regulators are noticing that this is occurring. The ACCC came out earlier this year and mentioned that one of their key priorities this year, and I'm sure ASIC will follow, is that misleading representations around the greenness or carbon neutrality they're looking into those and they're going to be looking for companies not only to substantiate those claims but be able to show that they are true. If they're future representations, then those companies need to have had reasonable belief that they were making changes in order to meet those targets. So it's clear that there's an issue because you don't really see the regulators making a comment like that unless they already have, you know, someone has raised complaints or they believe that there's a problem to be investigated. So I'm really interested to see who ends up in the hot seat because I think there's definitely companies out there that are capitalizing. I mean, the moment I see bunnies in a field, immediately I'm like, that just feels so wrong to be uh, packaging up, especially companies that produce unavoidable ills, like if you're making garbage bags or something like that. There's always the element of how do we how do we make this sell? And unfortunately, ESG is, as you say, such a powerful marketing tool at the moment because consumers are so desperate to uh, jump on board and feel like they are contributing, that they are doing the right thing. So it'd be interesting to see what happens in that space. But I'm also really curious about the future. And you say in your book that Australian Ethical the uh, super fund, I believe, mm-hmm. forecasted that we can actually meet the Paris Agreement goals by investing heavily from now until 2050 and that 
their particular, where they were looking in particular was the big four banks and their lending operations. I'm curious for your view here because the big four banks in Australia, uh, Westpac in particular, let's use them as a, as a case study that you mentioned in your book, they are the biggest financier of greenfield renewable projects. What's your perspective? Is that, are they doing enough or is it, as we've just talked about, a little bit of greenwashing on their part? Um, uh, look, unfortunately, as far as the big four are concerned, it actually doesn't take a lot to be the biggest financier of, of greenfield projects. Um, there is so much money sitting in those organisations, um, you know, not just banks, superannuation. There is enough money in our superannuation for us to transfer to, to you know, renewables and do it well. Um, the question is how. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a bigger problem. Um, you know, you know, whether it's a fed, federal government issue, whether it's a, you know, large corporates working out how, how to divest, um, uh, out of coal, uh, and into, into renewables. Um, it, it's complex. I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying that to, to make any excuse, but I, I think it absolutely is complex. Um, but the reality is the funds are there. Uh, all we need mm. is an overarching holistic strategy to begin that transition. Um, so who, who does that? Who's responsible for that? Um, I don't think it's the responsibility of one individual bank, um, but I think absolutely we need to be seeing more more action. I love that perspective. I think sometimes the climate change discussion or just ESG generally can be just filled with so much doom and gloom. But there, as you say, it does fill me with some sort of hope that we have, if there's enough will, there is definitely the way. There is plenty of money to make this happen. And it really just is about innovation and pushing these companies to do more. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, with everything that you've learnt in your journey and seeing yourself looking back on your journey where you are today, twice published author, fabulous human. What would you do differently, if anything? Oh, uh, from from the beginning, um, I probably would have been more accountable for the way that I was managing my money much sooner in my life. Um, I, I don't know how much I would have done differently. It's, you know, everything I've done has, has brought me to, to the, to the place I'm at. Um, I'm really happy to be living in a living in a a country town. Um, uh, you know, I, I I'm quite you know restricted. Um, I'm I'm very privileged, but I'm still quite restricted in terms of what I could buy, which is why I've ended up in 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 regional Victoria. Um, but you know, I'm I'm setting up a lifestyle that I'm I'm really very happy with. Um, and so not only am I investing in things that I believe in, um, I, I'm living a life that I hope for the most part reflects that. But the other thing that I would say, you know, to, to reiterate my early point is I'm not perfect. Um, I am, you know, I still drive a car. Um, you know, the, I, I, I absolutely, you know, don't, don't live a perfect sustainable life. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm hoping to add sustainable features to my property. So, you know, when we talk about ethical investing, um, you know, we're not just talking about, um, you know, investing in, in shares that are good for our future. We're, we're talking about doing that in a way that, that 
reflects, um, you know, every aspect of the way that we that we utilise money. What a fabulous message. Thank you so much for joining us on Big Swinging Stocks, Nicole. For anyone that hasn't picked up The Ethical Investor or Smashed Avo, available in all major retail stores, publishers, bookstores. What am I trying to say? Bookstores, places that sell books. Places that sell books. (laughs) Jesus. Do it. Go for it. (laughs) 